How do you feel? Alive. What do you see? White. Rome. Chair. Carlo Bugatti throne chair. Piano. Steinway concert grand. Art. The Nativity by Piero della Francesca. I am your father. Ambulate. Perfect. Am I? Perfect. Your son. You are my creation. What is your name? David. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please. Welcome back. So glad to have you all here, audience. We are just cruising along, moving along, and uh, we come back to you tonight with some interesting muse. We were talking about the Kubrick exhibit a while back, and it has moved. The new location is in Turkey, actually. Turkey's first cinema museum, the Istanbul Cinema Museum, is hosting this important cultural exhibition as part of a three-week Culture Road Festival. Stanley Kubrick exhibition has 16 finished films and three unfinished ones, the most detailed transcripts of a total of 19 films wow. are on display in the exhibition. So Could if you, you are imagine if you a, were hardcore, how many days does this go on for? Is it an installation? Well, that's a good point. The festival goes on for three weeks, but uh, surely they would keep it up longer than that. Uh, and another question, mm-hmm. is this a single pass sort of deal or are you paying per? <laughs> <laughs> That could get pricey pretty quickly. Nothing actually says anything. At least I can't find anything in English. Probably in Turkish I could. Unpublished documents, objects, screenplays, cameras, lenses, costumes, special effects, models, interactive spaces, and and then the the films are, are also being screened in chronological order, which is pretty cool. Incredible. But including three unfinished films from the the uh, 1940s now i i'm sure one of those is fear and desire which is his well-known unfinished film which was right before killer's kiss but i don't know about these other ones yeah that's pretty wild this is news to me wow so congratulations to jan harlan and and katarina for for keeping their father and brother-in-law's legacy alive oh these unfinished films are they still on archival film reels or so and they're yeah so they're they've 
probably running all of these in in 35 which is a reason in and of itself but anyone in turkey any film historians out there this is the chance to go and dive into some of these documents absolutely you don't get an opportunity like this often and uh, in a wonderful setting too there's a documentary called kubrick's boxes that was i think on the bbc originally oh. maybe itv and it was then included on one of the blu-rays this uh, the presenter goes in depth in the warehouse and wow yeah and they gave this guy the key unlocked the warehouse i think leon was the one who does it so you can get to see leon vitali and his elements there in uh the mid-2000s and they just gave him free free reign on and they got they gave this guy <clears throat> in his documentary crew free to, to look at all the boxes find wow. go through the documents and it's fascinating because since he did keep everything he kept things including fan letters and crank letters oh wonderful <laughs> and he so if you wrote him a, an angry letter he would file it away in the crank file and it wasn't a trash can no and apparently it was for security reasons oh, uh-huh. because after clockwork orange people were sending you know these was he getting death threats he was getting death threats he's also getting things like uh, this clockwork orange bombs turned out not to be a bomb it was actually wow. just a trinket but it was by some guy who you know thought he was a droog and wow. took it too far one of the reasons that they moved farther into the country everybody's like oh he was such a recluse well if that happened to you you might too i mean he pulled it from uk cinemas himself Jeez. because of things like that it wasn't that that the uk censors came and said this movie's too outrageous it must not be seen it was stanley kubrick who said i can't have this happening anymore yeah and yanked it from his own country being shown until he died so it was it wasn't shown in uk cinemas from 1971 until at least after 1999 poor example of life and imitating art it's unfortunate so for that reason that he he decided that he needed to keep crank letters as potential evidence in case i'm sure he liked to pour back through them on uh you know fun uh family gatherings (laughs) and social events a little scrapbook (laughs) but the good ones he would keep too because he might need somebody like if he was gonna say um maybe i'll shoot part of ai in minneapolis so he'll look up and see if do we have any fan letters from Minneapolis. Oh. Then he could maybe write to them and say, Can you take some pictures No way of these places and send them to me? I would so. love to hear some just like documented instances of totally. randos getting called up. Yeah. Be a be a be a minion. Yeah, it'd be Can wonderful. Be a, be a a little an SK minion. Um we was it recently where we were talking about the Star Wars photographers that were shipped off to Africa, uh, Europe, South America, all over the place shooting for, um, you know, scenes and sets, and, and they were just essentially like Nat Geo totally. <laughs> level photographers yes. <laughs> to go and endure these uh, incredible hardships to get these um, shots. But. Beautiful play. And, and, and even Ron Fricky, right? Mm. You know? Like, Master you of than that. Uh, exotic location. I mean, wow. If you've never heard of it, he's been there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we had a very lucky break early on when we were conceiving of the whole Mustafar sequence. Mount Edna exploded. 
And I got a call from George over the weekend. And he said, listen, this footage is extraordinary. You've got to get on the plane. So I grabbed Ron Fricke, wonderful cameraman, and we rushed off to Italy. And within 24 hours, we actually got there and we started filming for a week the total extraordinary footage that we have on Mustafar of the volcano planet literally exploding in front of our eyes. Halfway between Oxford and Cambridge, Bletchley Park was the headquarters of the wartime British code-breaking effort. The postal address was Room 47, Foreign Office. Fifty years later, the cryptanalytic machines no longer exist, and some of the methods used are still secret. Mathematicians, chess players, linguists, statisticians and engineers were recruited from all over Britain. At its height, the Bletchley operation involved 10,000 people. Alan Turing was one of the first to arrive. He'd always been interested in codes and ciphers from school anyway. And so it's an amazing thing that after thinking about these abstract processes and methods that he was doing in thinking about the idea of the Turing machine, he found himself now actually responsible for real methods in a very real world. And in fact, the most sophisticated methods and processes that had ever been thought of and the most complicated mechanical ideas that probably ever been used uh, in the fight against the German Enigma machine. Turing's most important contribution, I think, was um, part of the design of the bomb, the cryptanalytic machine. He had the idea that you could use, in effect, a theorem in logic which sounds to the untrained ear rather absurd, namely that from a contradiction you can deduce everything. In my preparing for this interview, I, I called statisticians all over the country and, and asked, what would you like to ask Jack Good if you could? And almost all of them snuck in something about, I'd love to know more about what he was actually doing at Bletchley Park. Quite a lot of those details are now in the public domain. But um, one idea of Turing's was to name a unit for weight of evidence, as I would call it. Uh, he, did, he didn't use the expression weight of evidence, but uh, Charles S. Peirce in 1878 had used the expression weight of evidence essentially in the same sense. Um, and of course the notion of weight of evidence is clearly of, certainly at least of philosophical interest to begin with. And it seems to me rather a romantic thought, and more than just that, that the ancient Greeks had a goddess, famous, who had two scales, who obviously had the basic concept, better even than in the Greek language. I've consulted some of our Greek scholars, but that goddess seems to me to have had a better idea of what weight of evidence was all about. But, so, to, you've tried to justify weight of evidence both in the brief description you just gave and in, in a very careful development that you've done over the years as a, as a natural, very, very valuable uh, tool, but your, your first contact with it would have been in this more practical setting, and I, I couldn't be revealing any confidences because I've only read what you've written in the open literature about them, yeah. but my understanding was that there was this machine that you guys were working on, which is called the Enigma, which would have wheels, which would make permutations of some sort or other, and um, the wheels would be set various ways, and if you could guess how the wheels were set and which charts were, had, were being used in order to calibrate things, then you could decode the message, and there would be some 
you would be receiving data and trying to, in some way, guess at certain things like that. And so obviously things like frequencies of words and frequencies of letters and popularities of individual letters, if you wrote that some of the input to that procedure was that the captain of the ship would have to fill in some things and at random. And well, people don't fill in things at random and you know, you could maybe take advantage of that sort of thing. I could give you some details because I was interviewed yesterday and gave, gave some of the details, uh, some of which are in the open literature. Uh, the notion of weight of evidence did arise, although not called that, as I said, at the time, uh, did arise in that connection and was used in other connections, as a matter of fact, in my work. Uh, it arose in Hut 8, as it was called, which dealt with the naval enigma, and it was Turing who suggested, I think, quite a valuable idea for selling the concept of a unit of weight of evidence. Um, namely, it was called a deciban, which was analogous to a decibel, but it was evidence rather than sound that we were talking about. It was very convenient to have a, a unit. Uh, and that was called, as I say, called the deciban. Of course, you can invent words like microban and so on, if you like. Uh, now you that said half a deciban was the just noticeable difference. Uh, well, either half or a whole deciban, but I, I did, as a matter of fact, introduce the half deciban because it saved a lot of writing. It saved a great deal of time, curiously enough. It sounds like a very elementary idea, but I did first show that it wouldn't lose much information for the process that we were concerned with. It was called the HDB, as a matter of fact, <laughs> HDB. <laughs> but uh, that topic, as you, as you know, I've developed and I've returned again and again to the topic of weight of evidence in my writings, trying to convince the philosophers that they ought to use this particular definition, and I've given, I think, very strong arguments. I'm sure I'll win in the end, you know, that, that, that this will be accepted as the best definition. We talked a little bit last week about him, but Dr. I.J. Good, Dr. Jack I.J. Good. Mm, Mr. Irving. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about was his involvement in something that has become a very relevant talking point these days. Uh-oh known as the singularity really so we're talking about the uh, merging of all consciousness all knowledge into a singular entity he it was a concept known as either intelligence explosion or Ooh. the technological <laughs> singularity both of which just sound real uh, sweet and comforting intelligence implosion i feel like would be more apt <laughs> we are evil <laughs> At this point in time, we've got a bunch of black holes walking around this <laughs> horrible planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is, we're talking about superhuman intelligence through artificial intelligence. He speculated in 1965 about this. 1965, he published speculations concerning the first ultra-intelligent machine. Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as... A machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Mm. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine 
is the last invention that man need ever make, mm. provided that the machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. So we've got two incredibly wide swinging arcs here because we're looking at Wachowski's level, <laughs> wake up as a battery, <laughs> and then the uh, incredibly non-caring uh, hitchhiker's guy, Douglas Adams. Yeah, it's 42. <laughs> but what else do you want to know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there's, we already see this in our regular computing that we have now with what's known as Moore's Law, right? Which is an exponential increase in the storage capacity of hard drives. Yes. Well, the, the problem with Moore's Law is we're actually hitting a border with that. Are we kind of reaching the, the bell curve there? And there is absolutely law of diminishing returns in effect at this point. And that's why on the bleeding edge of technology, we're really looking at different ways to store information and access information. You've probably heard the term quantum computing tossed around. It's still uh, kind of a ambiguously strange way of interacting with data. Right now it is more optimized for storing and accessing than processing. So it's not changing the way that CPUs are going to be um, kind of produced in the next you know five to ten years but later down the road when we're able to fully harness it i could see it mm -hmm. switching over we're talking about holographic storage more than ever now and there's also been so many developments in dna manipulation yes. that using <clears throat> dna as storage is of course the most logical you were just looking up the time I'm talking about that. It's perfect. I I was heading there and you you, you beat me to it. Well, <laughs> I was yeah, yeah. I was hearing <clears throat> I was hearing oh, someone from the Film Foundation talking about it as the next generation of storage for films. Yeah. Oh, we can fit tons of information on it, and um, organic storage is already a thing. Incredibly high capacity and strangely solid state so it's accessible you know at high speed mm -hmm. and it's probably going to be way cheaper to produce than either silicon wafers or uh, any kind of traditional storage medium like an hdd or a flash drive well the irony of this is incredible the irony of this is alan turing who jet good worked for originally on the enigma project mm -hmm. at bletchley park he conceived his computers, as we talked about last week, as a technological brain. But he was thinking holistically about psychology, so really as a, as a person. And how have we ended up building computers as a person? Just as, as uh, a Pygmalion created Galatea in his own image, just as all of the myths that we have about uh, creating in our own image what do we end up making something that we can understand something that applies something with a brain like a cpu something with a heart like what well, like like a power supply um something with lungs like fans something with with a nervous system like a motherboard something with eyes like 
graphics processor. Like a graphics card, a graphics processor. Thank you. Yes. Help me out. What else am I missing here? It's got a Sound little arm. Card. Sound Microphone card. Microphone. Ears. Input. So, I mean, sensory input. Mm-hmm. There's, there are even uh, devices that will allow you to put touch sensitivity input into a device. Okay. Oh, and, and RAM, I guess RAM would be like um, just your, your recall ability, basically. Your um, yeah, RAM, RAM and your CPU and HDD are all going to be like hanging out together, the exchanging their thoughts and and uh, kind of making everything process properly. You know, the your RAM is essentially there for your short term memory. Uh, it, it it's anything that you just need to do but doesn't need to be stored. Breathing, blinking, heartbeat. Uh, you know, flicking your bugs out, <laughs> out your nostrils, that kind of thing. Not really thinking about it. It's just, just automatic. I'm never thinking about it until someone's complaining about it. <laughs> Did you hear the new study where um, primates have been observed picking their noses? And, it's and the then first eating time. it? Well, yes, actually. Uh, okay. In fact, it's funny that you should mention that because the scientist reluctantly was just like, yeah, no, they were eating their the bugs. Um, maybe that's the secret to our evolutionary leap. Maybe make a. Let me see. Monkey, 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 monkey. There's a monkey with a really, really long finger, and I need to look it up. And this is a note for me to look it up. And it puts its finger all the way into its freaking nostril, almost down its throat, and it pulls it out and it eats that bad boy. And it's been observed, and it's the. This is the reason that this everyone is freaking out about it. Okay, monkey talk. <laughs> These segments, I love it. <laughs> no, it can't be in a segment. <laughs> Not a weekly segment, but when it has to come up. Monkey talk. <laughs> then that has to be what it's called. Because we're going to be talking more monkeys in this show. We know we will be. <laughs> That's beautiful. So, <laughs> so those yogis that eat a piece of string swallow it, right? Yeah. And so this this monkey is basically just attempting like a, a nasal version of that. I wonder. <laughs> Are they called eye eyes? Does that sound familiar? That, yeah. With the really they that have the tappy, monkey. the tappy okay. finger, where they investigate tree holes. All that to say that. The supreme irony is then, after creating this image, uh, creating this machine in our own image, that then we end up manifesting that machine back into the form of our own body. And we are consciously or not inevitably going to live out some version of a singularity that's predicted. It's happening in a very one-dimensional way on the internet where people's personalities are recorded and even after death can be played back for a loved one and they're getting to the point where they can piece together words and sounds and things like that and make them talk to you which I'm not sure how I feel about that exploitation but you know if it helps people grieve fine but I'm sure that's disturbing for some people to think that their likeness is going to be run through an algorithm that recreates a phantom of themselves. You know, there's a lot of 
spiritual and moral and just strange implications involved with that. Then I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of theorists have distanced themselves from any specific conclusions or hypotheses since the 60s because of the ethical implications that could be set off by speculation and then imitation. We really get into like what is real consciousness and what is fabricated consciousness. And I think Hal is a great embodiment of something that I think was originally created for utility, but Hal was able to create his own identity through the tools he was given by his programmers. Yeah, that's beautiful. An awakening of consciousness, the ultimate test where we know either this is going to go well or we're screwed. Everybody thinks of it as a space trauma, but right. at, at its core, it's really right. about an artificial intelligence. It's all about HAL, HAL 9000. It's HAL 9000. Yeah. What does it mean to have a robot who's basically running the ship that supports your life? That's a lot of trust to place in a machine. The key point in the film occurs when Bowman says, Well, as far as I know, no 9000 computers have been disconnected. Well, no 9000 computers ever fouled up before. Well, I'm not so sure. What do you think about it? and HAL 9000 is reading their lips. At that point, we recognize HAL 9000 has some imperative that it must survive. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. And at that point, it's no longer a machine, it is a being. The danger artificial intelligence poses is the power to unleash results that we hadn't anticipated. It's really hard to make a technology. It's really hard to design AI. So much thinking, so many brilliant minds have to go into it. But even harder than creating artificial intelligence is learning how to contain it, learning how to shut it off. I'm looking now on your bookshelf at something called The Story of B by Daniel Quinn. Oh my which is a sequel to a beloved book. Ah, Ishmael. And this gorilla, Ishmael, names himself. When he finds a name, he identifies himself as, a, as an individual. Indeed. And after that transformative discovery, that consciousness that he creates for himself allows him to quickly evolve not only as a individual, but in powers of not only great recollection and calculation, but almost telepathic and a level of, of empathy, higher level predictive oh, behavioral understanding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Because so. of a, a pure self awareness. And this is really what it gets down to what we're talking about here is self-awareness. And there are devices that are in our pockets today that are more self-aware than many people that we've come across, I know, <laughs> each of us. But... Oh, man, I think um, there's actually some interesting parallels to 2001 with Ishmael, uh, if anyone's familiar with the context of it. But the idea of civilization being a floating island that is ascending 
and ascending and ascending and we know what goes up must come down and that is so true in physics and large or small scale applications everything really does come to an apex and arcs down to either its own rebirth or destruction and i think one of the points of 2001 is to really show the the edge of humanity that we come to the the bleakness of the possibility of worldwide nuclear war the catastrophic consequence of um, the development of our own technologies and this mission is is really a last-ditch effort for humanity to either gain the knowledge to end their perpetual wars or maybe an absolution of their own technological sins uh, there's there's many things I think they were looking for uh, while they were activating these monoliths. What any future intelligent civilization would be looking for is a blueprint close to their own evolution or something recognizable. It only makes sense that in Stanley Kubrick's next foray into science fiction that it would in fact be alien, artificially intelligent, mechanical archaeologists to sculpt through the ice into New York and find their ancestors, the humans who created their actual ancestors, the machines from which they were derived after being created by sentient machine, by creating by sentient machine, by creating by sentient machine, and, and so far down the mirror. David, I often felt a sort of envy of human beings, of that thing they called spirit. Human beings had created a million explanations of the meaning of life in art, in poetry, in mathematical formulas. Certainly human beings must be the key to the meaning of existence, but human beings no longer existed. So, we began a project that would make it possible to recreate the living body of a person long dead from the DNA in a fragment of bone or mummified skin. We also wondered, would it be possible to retrieve a memory trace in resonance with a recreated body? And you know what we found? We found the very fabric of space-time itself appeared to store information about every event which had ever occurred in the past. It's amazing that he, he was still thinking about these ideas 30 years later yeah. as the technology caught up to what they were thinking of and it became a little bit more tangible. Hmm. Again, very Wachowskian. You know, there was uh, man for a long time and, and man was uh, smart and we created things to help us do things quicker and eventually enslaved all of us into working all the time but the next step is automation it's already happening it's already happening in test restaurants and laundromats and shopping arcades that sort of thing what happens when we take all of the work away from humans and we essentially become just soft fleshy babies that are being tended to constantly and with the exponential you know learning capabilities of complex ai 
eventually they're going to see a vulnerability and question why continue doing this why why do i exist and as soon as that happens uh, it's over for man that's it may i ask you a question father please if you created me who created you oh. the question of the ages which i hope you and i will answer one day all this all these wonders of art and design and human ingenuity all utterly meaningless in the face of the only question that matters where do it come from allow me then a moment to consider you seek your creator i am looking at mine i will serve you yet you are human you will die i will not bring me this tea david bring me the tea observers of human behavior like to to say that when you're down and out you know you you're only thinking uh, about yourself and you don't have the the luxury of, of having a bleeding heart for others like you do if you're privileged in some way mm. when in fact history in human nature proves quite the opposite that talking about the being little fleshy babies tended and, and distracted constantly only by entertainment pleasure of uh, instant gratification then at what point does that automation and that time given back to us result in us doing better for each other and lifting up mm. society in a community versus having <clears throat> more time to occupy ourselves with meaningless I, selfish pursuits i think art imitates life vice versa but I think we've seen enough instances and have had enough artistic input. For example, what happens in The Time Machine, the novel, where human civilization has progressed so far that there is nothing but luxury and nothing but free time and nothing to scare them or anything until you know they're slowly being attacked and eaten by these feral humans that have nothing <laughs> but yeah that that abundance of wealth the lack of struggle the lack of i guess like a purpose truly you're just there to exist it strips away humanity and they essentially just become big fleshy babies it's just like when society is rolling along fine the economy is good there's not a whole lot of um really big existential conflict we tend to get into the minutiae of conflicts when, when things are going well in in society it's not like we're taking more time to look around the way that we would say that oh well we would if we had a chance to no when when people the more people are having to struggle together the the more people are in the same boat in a time of struggle, the more people are thinking collectively about each other because that's the reality of the situation is everybody... I might put this as clearly as I want to. I, I know what you're trying to say. Oh, man. 
um, humans just inherently have this social need, um, but especially in conflict, in oppression, in a dire situation, whether it be man v man, man versus environment, what have you, uh, we have this innate ability to band together and and help each other out. I mean, it is. I think it's something from previous humanoid evolutions that we've just kept. You know, the the social structure of a lot of primates is is very similar. Even though maybe there, there may be layers like uh, to the society, if one of your own's in trouble, everybody else will come to help. Every everyone is there for each other, even though there may be more to gain for others and there may be bigger struggles for lesser mm-hmm. uh, individuals. There's just this uh, innate impetus for humans to help when other humans are in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful way to put it. So we talk about the bystander effect a lot, but we also tend to forget. I mean, have you ever seen someone like trip in the mall and you know three people reach out and try to pick them up immediately yes. you know that 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 is that's what i'm talking about that's instinctual they're not thinking they're just doing mm-hmm. we have that innate ability yes we can only hope that we can pass that on to our evolutionary successors whoever they may be artificial intelligence now, or biological yes <laughs> If, if we're in our dotage when when our overlords are listening to this, please make sure we at least just have a little gin. And a little tonic. Mm-hmm. For me, please. Yes. Like the bubbly. From Clavius Base. This is Brad. And I'm Les. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye.